I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. ES Audio. You're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Durrant. And I'm Nick Clark. This is what's coming up on today's show. We'll be reviewing Brokeback Mountain at At Soho Place. That's starring Mike Feist and Lucas Hedges. Hear my chat with actor, author and playwright Mark Gatiss, who's currently starring in The Motive and the Cue. 1964 is a a, a different world. In many ways, you know, there's a scene where Burton is drunk and at rehearsal and and has, brings scotch and sodas for everybody. But but actually, truth is, probably a lot of them would be drunk. Yeah. That's on at the National Theatre. Plus, for our second review, it's Once on this Island at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. That stars Gabrielle Brooks, who you may remember for an absolutely knockout performance as Rita Marley in Get Up Stand Up, the Bob Marley musical. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. This is your go-to theatre guide for what to see or not to see in London. So before we get into our first review, what's been going on this week? Well, Nick, you spent quite a lot of your weekend at the theatrical event of the year, I I think, which was Ruth Wilson's stage marathon at the Young Vic. I did. This was the second woman, a 24-hour play in which Ruth Wilson plays the same scene 100 times with 100 different men, none of whom she's rehearsed with, most of whom she's never met before, most of whom are amateurs. Uh, It started at 4pm on Friday, went on till 4pm on Saturday, after which I hope Ruth Wilson had a well-deserved line now because... It was astonishing. It was actually a really fascinating, energising, surprisingly funny theatrical experience. And because it was a one-off in a small theatre, I'm afraid it did have that tang of exclusivity to it. There are going to be people wandering around for the next 20 years going, oh, didn't you get to see it? Oh, shame, I was there. Those numbers are going to grow and grow. By the the end of it, there'll be sort of millions. It's going to be like the the first Sex Pistols. Exactly. Exactly exactly that. Capacity of Wembley Stadium. Yes. So I stayed to see our um, Friday Supplement ES magazine's editor, Ben Cobb, in it as well, which was extraordinary. Um, everyone in the office was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but they're all, everyone was always like, oh, you got to act with Ruth Wilson. How fantastic. Well, I think. Uh, then I went home, had a bit of supper, slept for four hours, got on my bike at three o'clock in the morning, went back, queued for two hours wow. to That's get incredible. in at six o'clock. Saw eight more actors, I think, and saw how it had changed overnight. She had become much looser, Ruth Wilson. She was quite sort of reserved at the beginning of the whole event. By that stage, she was sort of clambering all over the guys she was acting. With and the audience were going wild. It was like being at a festival. It was like being at a blur reunion or something. How funny! It was great, and it was a real insight into the sort of nuance and reaction of acting. You know, yeah, seeing the variety of it. Mm. How Ex- 
exactly, many different yes. ways you can do yeah. the same thing. And just seeing her sort of subtly calibrate herself to each new person. Quite early on, she was just not reacting to the men, which really freaked a lot of them out, you know, for obvious reasons. You've never acted before. You're stuck on stage with this really famous actress in front of 400 people, and she's not talking to you. <laughs> it, it was great. It was terrific. It did, it did knock me slightly for six for the, a couple of days. So God bad. knows what it was doing, what it did to her metabolism. Yeah. What a, well, as you Good said in her. your review, what a goddess. What a yeah. goddess. She is absolutely a goddess. Amazing. But, yeah, the other news this week, which I know you wrote about, Nancy, was the blackout performance yeah. at uh, Stratford East. Yeah, so Theatre Royal Stratford East. The, this, the blackout performances are a thing that have been going in the US for a little while now, actually. They're sort of um, basically uh, a play which has been, or a show or a film or whatever it is, has, uh, that is, is written um, very much with a black audience in mind, uh, or for a black audience, very much about their lives. They might decide to do one performance in which they encourage the audience to be entirely black essentially so that you know so other people would choose a different date they decided to do this for the play tambo and bones at the theater royal stratford east which is about two black men sort of stuck in a minstrel show so you know it's about race yeah. <laughs> and it's written from the point of view of black people and it's got uh, it's very much about black culture i haven't seen it mm. yet because it's not <clears throat> it hasn't even opened um, but they decided to do um a blackout performance for this and a load of people lost their minds. Well, it opened up a new front in the culture war, it essentially. Did. It exactly absolutely that. did. People got very upset about it. And one of the things that was said uh, was that it was racist against white people. This is not what I would call a racist act. The ideal is that everyone gets to do all the same things all the time mm. and that no, none of these things need to happen. Uh, everyone gets to play all the roles all the time and you know, no, nobody needs to be favoured. That is absolutely true unless the playing field is not level and the playing field is not level. Yes. Uh, Nadia Ford, the artistic director of the Theatre Royal Stratford, he's wrote very eloquently. She said it's about addressing that imbalance. It's, you know, offering a night to centre and celebrate the black experience. Yeah, I think this is a good thing to do. Having written about it, rather better, I hope, than I just explained it, but um, I think this is a good thing to do. Right, should we get into our first review? It's Brokeback Mountain at, at Soho Place. I have seen the film. I thought it was an absolutely wonderful film starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger. Uh, was shamefully denied the Oscar that year. Uh, I think it was the film Crash, which oh was Oh, God, yeah, just, that was all a bit oh, like, what? Oh, yeah. Terrible. So, yes, uh, sadly, justice was not done that year. But did the theatre makers do justice to this adaptation? Nick? I think, yes, they did. I admit I went into this with a certain amount of trepidation, not least because it was um, largely misbilled as a musical. It's not a musical. It is a play with music, but everybody was talking about Brokeback Mountain, the musical, and I think all of us thought, that that's going to be just yeah, a just disaster. Such an awful idea. <laughs> Isn't it? And, and also because one of the big stars of the film is the landscape, you know, mm. these, these amazing sort of rolling Wyoming hills and wide open skies and arid plains, which of course it's quite difficult to do on a yeah, stage, exactly. you know, in a, a relatively small theatre like at Soho Place. Although the theatre version, this production is based 
mostly on Annie Prue's short story, isn't it? It is. It? So it you is. Can, it's kind of stripped back and sort of stepped yeah. away from the movie. And I think the music is there to supply the landscape for you, really. You didn't like the music itself. I liked the music. Much, I didn't did like you? the lyrics. Uh, that, yeah. that was the important distinction. I, I love the music. Yeah. I love that sort of yearning country twang to it. I think it. I just didn't listen to the lyrics at all because it was, as you said, it was all kind of like roll and hails. Oh, the wind is know, blowing. There was an eagle. Oh, you know, <laughs> it's like, cold. But as a as a sound, it was very much an atmospheric backdrop for me. Yes. Yeah, it worked yeah. really well. I think you're right. It kind of evoked the landscape that you couldn't see. The music is composed by Dan Gillespie Sells. It's sung largely by uh, Eddie Reader in front of a, a very tight four string band with some excellent uh, steel guitar and upright bass being played. A lot of people were raving about B.J. Cole, the steel guitarist in it, who's obviously somebody I'm, I need to pay more attention to in yeah. the future. I think Mike Feist is uh, Jack Twist, the Gyllenhaal character. If we're if we're referring back to the film, which I think we inevitably have to, it's, yeah, exactly. it's the one I'm people's minds. <laughs> who is the sort of initiator of this love story, and mm. it is very much, I think, a, a love story. He sort of slowly unpicks this very buttoned-up character, uh, Ennis Delmar, played by Lucas Hedges, just sort of worms his way under his carapace that he's sort of developed through bereavement and hardship and a you know a fairly tough life. And the two of them find liberation mm. alone on this freezing mountain and discover a sort of happiness that I don't think either of them had ever anticipated, or, or certainly Ennis hadn't. There's a hint that Jack, there's a hint yeah. that Jack might have anticipated it a few times in the past, <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you, you saw it as well, didn't you? Nancy, on a different yeah, night. What did I you did. think? I did. I saw it on Friday. I really enjoyed it. Actually, it was a straight through. I thought that worked very, very well. And as you say, Mike Feist is brilliant. His yeah. Jack has that sort of boyish cockiness like at the start because they're quite young men at the beginning it follows them over the course of 20 years and it has this sort of odd kind of guileless exuberance that's extremely charming yeah I mean he's also very nice to look at which helps but it sort of fits with his kind of much more reckless idealistic character who has leaned in much more to the fact that he is attracted to men yeah I thought Lucas Hedges was was pretty good I mean his Ennis is very taciturn yes so it's hard to see the charm of him sometimes yeah I think but it's, um, it's the harder role as well because he has to convinced in the scenes with Jack but then also with his wife yes, and Alma. you have to play this very careful sort of balancing act of believing that he's attracted to her and has had two daughters with her and yeah. that they have a, an active sex life but that really at the back yeah. of his mind he's always thinking about, about yes, Jack. Yes, the person he loves is Jack. I thought Emily Fenn was very good as Alma. I think yeah. she's a bit of a newcomer. Straight out of drama school. This is her first his, uh, sort That's of amazing. West End so stage you, debut. You could, you could really feel the sort of the hope of her as they get, as they get married and then the disappointment yeah. that she experiences at the hands of that marriage, at the hands of Ennis, really is is really palpable, yes. I think. It's a very clever piece of alchemy, putting these people together who you wouldn't naturally think of. I don't think either Feist or Hedges have, you know, marquee attraction, no. but they have a certain sort of intangible cool, you know, uh, Feist was uh, riff in West Side Story, the Steven yeah, Spielberg and remake. fantastic in Incredible that. In Absolute that. scene stealer. But for British audiences, that's really all he's known for. He's a Broadway actor, you know, he, he originated one of the roles in Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. Mm. Um, Hedges, best known for Manchester by the Sea, mm. the Kenneth Lonergan and was Oscar nominated in that they're sort of exciting cool young art house actors they're yeah, not you know so. they're not blockbuster stars mm-hmm. and so to put them together with Dan Gillespie Sells who may you know 
know, touch off ideas in some people's minds. Yeah, but you he know. is just that bloke out of the feeling to exactly. a lot of other yeah. people. And, and everybody's talking about Jamie. Yes. Yeah, but too. to anyone who isn't into oh, musical sure. theatre, sure, yeah, sure, sure. the bloke from the feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, no, the other one. And you know what I don't think Western no. theatre audiences will go, oh, Eddie Reader must go and you know, must go and hear her singing. Yeah. You said the title is kind of the draw. The title is the draw. Yeah, I think so. And because of the film. I was talking to the person I went with and, you know, the film was very much kind of marketed at the time as a as a universal love story mm. and of course love is universal you know in that it's between two people and anyone who has ever been in love or wanted to be in love can relate to it very easily but I think a, a gay love at that time in that place can only flourish indeed if at all in total isolation and that's what like the the intimate theatre context with this limited cast of four people it really leans into and highlights that particular aspect of the story in a way that the film can't do because it isn't intimate because it's massive because it's got this very sort of small not claustrophobic but certainly intimate space you you are aware that when they are alone they are completely alone and they have to be and when there's anybody else anywhere near them they cannot be who they are. And I think that aspect of the story is served very well by the context. Yeah, because it's set in 1967, and as we said, in Wyoming, where I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, a homosexual relationship would not find it easy to flourish. No, uh, and that is woven very much into the story, and you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, they, they, need the, they need the isolation to, to exist, really. Yeah. I love the sense that they were both sort of startled and alarmed by this passion that they felt yeah, for Yeah, by another. the strength I, of it. I felt that very... Um, very powerfully, and I thought they, they not only had very convincing sexual chemistry, but they had a great ease together in the later scenes. There was a lovely physical relaxedness to them both. I, know, I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was massively sexy, but the mm. scenes of easy intimacy between them are utterly convincing and really lovely, you know, just sort of like snuggling into each other, one arm thrown over a chest. It was just, yeah. oh, it was, it was gorgeous. It was really, really lovely. This felt like another sort of step in theatre regaining its confidence, mm. somebody putting together this thing and saying to Mike Face and Lucas Hedges, come over, this will be fun, this will be really interesting, you know, this, there'll be an audience for this. Yeah, whether or not it's a universal love story, the audience skews overwhelmingly in one direction, or at least in the, on the night that I went. You went on press night, of yeah, course, so it yeah. would have been sort of, you know, 50% producers and critics and whatever. But for me, I mean, specifically, if the performance I saw is anything to go by, it's gay men who are well over 30. <laughs> because, <laughs> right. But just because yes. I went with a, a gay man aged 25, and speaking to him, he was clear that he'd seen the film, uh, but he didn't remember it that well. Mm. It wasn't seminal for him in the way that maybe Moonlight was. Right. Whereas yes. if you're like 45 or something, Brokeback Mountain, Queer as Folk, those are your touchstones for seeing someone like you on screen if you're a gay man. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is just, you know, from speaking to people. I'm yeah. just, uh, not speaking for anyone. But it seemed very much like even it doesn't matter how much they marketed it in the first place. as this a universal love story. It's for everybody. It's just like, yes, but for some people... It's still a gay story, and it's really, really important yeah. for that reason. So I thought that was really nice. I mean, it's you know, it's not like the West End is sort of <laughs> empty of of uh, gay male audiences <laughs> generally, but it was just very interesting to see just how important that clearly was. There were a couple of things that I think were tricky, just in terms of it being in the theatre. In the film, I think you see what happens to Jack in the end, um, or at least you see what Ennis thinks has happened to Jack and you see it through his mind's eye. But here, there's an older Ennis, um, and that's played by Nick, can you tell me? Paul Hickey, who sort of lurks around the stage most Mm. of the time, looking, you know, sort of sad and regretful. He tells you, he just tells you what he thinks has happened. 
I don't know what you thought, but it didn't feel like it had the same kind of impact no, that it I, needed. No, I think, you know, that having that sort it's of... It's supposed to punch you in the gut, and yeah, it doesn't quite. No, and having that sort of living ghost, I wasn't particularly fond of. You know, no. It was sort of it, haunting the edges of the stage. No. no. I don't know what you thought about the set. I thought it was pretty good, but I found the bed shenanigans a bit distracting, and not in the way that that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> not, as, not as exciting as it sounds, you know, so podcast fans. there's this bed. Paint a picture for the listeners. Yeah, so there's this bed <laughs> at the end of the stage that kind of goes up and down um, in order, <laughs> not in the way you're not thinking again, right, okay, not in the okay, way that you're okay. thinking it, it sort of it pops sort up of, like Thunderbird 2 yeah <laughs> the actors can disappear into it and then appear somewhere else so it's, it's, it's essentially an escape hatch but it's also, you know, used as a, as a bed on stage. And it just, uh, the, the problem is that when it gets dark at that end and they've been on it and something else is happening, you do sort of get a bit distracted and are kind of watching to see whether you can see the kind of rumbling in the bedclothes that shows that they're trying to get down the escape hatch. <laughs> right. So it is a li- I found that a little bit distracting, mm. but perhaps my attention was wandering. I don't right. know. <laughs> I just wanted to also drop in here that uh, I live quite close to Vauxhall and the historic um, safe space that was the Vauxhall Tavern that was, you know, famously a gay venue since the Second World War, has behind it the remnants of the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. Yep. And there is a little hummock in the middle of the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which is apparently known as Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time for a quick break. Coming up, I caught up with Mark Gatiss at the National Theatre for The Motive and the Cue. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss my name is eddie Izzard. my name is also Susie Izzard, and you're listening to the evening standard theatre podcast i'm here at the national theatre with one of the stars of the motive and the cue the author actor writer many things beyond uh, mark gatis welcome to the evening standard theatre podcast thank you very much we're here to talk about the motive and the cue um Mark, can you tell us what's it about? It's based on two books, which I'll come on to in a minute, but it essentially concerns the the rehearsal of Richard Burton's Hamlet in 1964, which was directed by Sir John Gielgud. This was uh, on Broadway. This was on Broadway, yeah. They were old friends. Uh, Burton sort of hero-worshipped Gielgud, and Gielgud sort of discovered him. He put him in The Ladies Not For Burning in 1949, and then his career kind of blossomed from there. And I think Burton thought that Gilgood was going to bat him on the head and tell him he was marvellous. But it was it was actually a, a slightly more tempestuous uh, mm. experience. Basically, the old world and the new clashing. Mm. And that's what the play's about. So Jack Thorne has done a wonderful job creating a play from these two books. One written by an actor called Richard Stern, who was in the show, which was a transcription of 
the rehearsals, which he secretly recorded. Yes, he sort of hid under yeah. the stage at one stage, stage and did all sorts of And things. another by William Redfield, which is a much more gossipy book, right. and so between the two. And amazingly, Richard Stern was in last night, and he's in oh, tonight, wow. and he's in tomorrow night. But, uh, <laughs> but it's an extraordinary thought that someone How who was actually you know? I mean, must you... be about 81, I think. He was very young. He was, in, okay. he was about 16 when he did it. So. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, it's in the rehearsal room. It sort of gives the idea of actually the, the tensions, the coming together, the, yeah. the pulling apart of this production, but also how theatre productions are put together as well, it feels. Yes, uh, Sam Mendes um, directed it and it was his idea. He was very keen to do a play about rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And I think because you don't really see it, and actually it's very interesting when you talk to people who are, who've never been in a rehearsal room and they're, they're constantly surprised by by you know, the fact you have to do it again mm. every night <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, and also just by how it can change and I found I mean we, we worked a lot of, on that in rehearsal about you know you can't take things for granted if you don't if you've never been in a read-through or mm. you don't know what a model box is or just the idea of repeating a bit and then changing it radically mm. you know I think it was it's all been very interesting and, and the, the response has just been wonderful. When Sam first suggested the role of Gilgood. Obviously, he looms large in theatrical canon and he's a legendary figure. Was that a daunting thing or was that a real chance to get your teeth into someone? Very daunting. <laughs> but uh, oh, I was thrilled. I mean, it's, the it's genuinely the role of a lifetime. Mm. It's a wonderful play and it's a wonderful part and I love doing it and, and I've been overwhelmed by people's reaction to it, really. It's just delightful. But I've always loved him. I Really, always one of my favourites and mm. obviously knew him from screen work really mm. as a child because I didn't see him on stage but reading so much around around his life and his he was just clearly very delightful and and fascinating man and like this I mean you know there are just amazing anecdotes about how he's terrible um bricks that he dropped constantly yes but people loved him and mm. it's um it's a great wave of tenderness about him which I find terribly attractive and He's a fascinating man and just such an amazing actor. I mean, really just, and constantly pushing. That's what I find interesting, mm. you know. He had this late flowering when he was working with Peter Brook and then mm. and, and, uh, and then David Story and, and Pinter. And it's so interesting that he, he didn't just sort of rest on his laurels. He was constantly trying to reinvent himself. We sort of find him a bit on his uppers. I mean, he's directing yes. a Broadway show, but he, he wasn't. No, but as you said, it's the best offer he'd had in a, lot, in a very mm. long time because he was, Olivier had very cleverly hitched his wagon to the, the angry young men and the entertainer was written mm. for him and the, he got the national you know That's right. and and Gilgood was very much yesterday's man he was very renowned legendary but he, f he felt old-fashioned mm. and he just toured his one-man show ages of man for years and and he did bits and pieces but he was definitely yesterday's man and that's a big clash in the play as well Burton is if not the most famous man in the world he's part of the most famous couple in the world at the time alongside his wife Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, they just they got married during rehearsals, so it was the it was the absolute acme of um, Burton Taylor madness. You know? And how did you create your uh, Gilgood? I mean, I imagine a lot of reading, but you talked to some of the people who knew him as well. Yes, I did. Obviously, I mean, uh, I've been doing him since I was a child, <laughs> uh, but I talked to a lot of friends who knew him about you know a lot of his. He was Ramrod Strait. They also they Ramrod Strait and. Uh, uh, Simon Callow told me he, how quickly he spoke, in, uh, mm. especially in, in conversation. Like he said, it was like a, like a river. It was just sort of mm. tumbled out, all tumbled out of it. And <laughs> but also he did. He was a chain smoker, which I have not done, mm. largely because somehow or other, making Burton the booze and fags man makes me feel more sort of ascetic somehow, yeah. more sort of yeah, yeah. monk-like. 
Whereas, in fact, he literally yeah. smoked 20 Turkish cigarettes. Oh, really? <laughs> so that you have to make certain allowances. Absolutely. And then I obviously shaved my head, which is... A yes. So I've got to go, do it again in a minute because it grows back <laughs> with reassuring um, <laughs> thickness. There's a really moving scene where he comes back to the um, hotel with a uh, male sex worker. It's a very emotional moment. It's sort of one of the hearts of... It gets to the heart of him, I think, at some stage because... They just talk, and it's an extraordinary moment. It's obviously at a time in England and Wales when homosexuality was still outlawed. And I wondered, you know, in finding the character, how important that was, and also looking at it from 2023, you know, as a gay man, what you thought about that when you read that scene? Well, it's very, it's it's a lovely scene, but it's also very telling, as you mm -hmm. say. It's about, you know, Gilgood was arrested, and although he was fined, he was terrified it would be the end of his career. And then there's a very famous story, he went back on stage and got a standing ovation. And But he did have a, he had a breakdown later on mm. because of the stress of it. And I just finished a wonderful biography of him. And he was basically chaperoned for years by his friends. It wouldn't let him do any, mm. <laughs> have any fun. <laughs> but, um, and then later in life, he became much more sort of, oh, he just kind of couldn't be bothered to, to, to play the game, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's it's an intriguing part of it, and the whole culture is. 1964 is a, is a is a different world in many ways. You know, there's a scene where Burton is drunk, and at rehearsal, and and has brings scotch and sodas for everybody. But but actually, truth is, probably a lot of them would be. Drunk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do, I, I I mean, I, when I first started in in television, it was still sort of okay for people to drink at lunchtime and you know it's it's, it's inconceivable mm. so in a way dramatically you have to sort of make these decisions not mm. to judge something entirely from our perspective but and not to sneer at it mm. but also you have to i suppose dramaturgically define it more yeah. in order to define the the, the contrast you know mm. the, the truth about this this was a troubled production but it was a huge success yes you know they did fall out but it was it's sort of not terminal mm. but you know, for for the play to work, we have to make certain big decisions about mm -hmm. it. And I mean, it's a, a great love letter to theatre. There's lots of in jokes. There's lots of you know. When, the night that I saw it, a lot of theatre people, and it was standing ovation, and people really <laughs> laughed at all the things. Do you think it also, or have uh, fans come up to you afterwards who perhaps aren't involved in theatre or, yes. or don't know theatre as no, much? No, I as mean to be honest, that's what the thing that I'm finding very moving about it as well is that it's it's very universal it might feel like it's it's about just about theater but it's not it's about why you why we do anything mm. why we strive certainly in the arts but but, but anything it's mm. also it's about mortality it's about fathers and sons yes. it's about fame it's about reputation you know it's it's like hamlet it's about everything yeah, yeah. and uh it's comedy historical tragical really i i mean i've had friends in who maybe know who Elizabeth Taylor is but that's it mm. and uh, they totally get it mm. I mean they might not get some of the absolute nuances but but it, it's a universal play I think that's what's really successful about it and you spoke to Ian McKellen as well did he give you I any did, good I saw advice him well? well he'd been he came into a preview I didn't see him but I saw him a couple of weeks later and he'd seen it he said um Whose idea was the breath freshener because I, I, I used a breath freshener one but I said oh it was just to give me more to do while I was while they were changing the scenes, because um, my boyfriend and I once gave him a lift home in um, my mini, and his, his halitosis was so bad we had to wind the windows down. <laughs> <laughs>
And I mean, you know, I mentioned before, you are the ultimate uh, multi-hyphenate and uh, clearly very, very busy. So what, what if beyond this, this is July the 15th, I think it finishes. What have you got coming up after that? I don't know. <laughs> There's certainly talk of transferring, but we haven't oh, fantastic. confirmed yet. So I don't know when that would be. So that's that's the plan. I More mean, chance to, to, to keep Gilgood alive yes, a bit longer. Keep my, my hair like this for the longer, I'm afraid. Um, my, a little gap. We'll see. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure, actually. I've, there's a, f- a few things. Um, you know, it's the strangest thing about the theatre is, and it's, it's a sort of amnesia you always get, is you forget how absolutely all-consuming it becomes. When you're in rehearsal, the rest of life stops, suspends. I look. I just look at emails as if they're sort of insulting me by day, and then, and then when you open, you forget what that's like, and you go, "It's just, a, it's just the, the night job now." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then real life comes rushing back in. But also, it's still very, very much. You know, it's it, you get to a stage in the afternoon where you have to think about, and if it's a two-show day, it takes up the whole day, and. And then, and, I, and I'm a I'm a morning person, and uh, I'm now living a nighttime existence, which is so unusual. And it always happens, but I always forget. Yeah, yeah. And I also always think that I'll do loads during the day. And <laughs> does it work? And it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it's just a, it's just a lesson in re-education. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Mark Gatiss, thank you so much for, for uh, joining much. us on the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Thank you. That was Mark Gatiss speaking to me at the National Theatre. You can hear our podcast review of The Motive and the Cube by clicking the link in our show notes. And this is our weekly call-out. Do make sure you hit subscribe and give us a five-star please rating. We'll see you back here in just a minute. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Tim Minchin. I'm the composer-lyricist of Groundhog Day, the musical, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back. Let's get into our second review this week. It's Once on This Island at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. This one I didn't see. Uh, what did you guys make of it? Well, it was great, first of all, to be back at the open air theatre. I was wrapped up warm, ready <laughs> for, uh, for, you, for the summer season. You can season. always spot the amateurs, can't you, who turn up in shorts, whereas yeah. all, the, all the, you know, sort of veterans of the open air are there with sleeping bags and, you know, <laughs> insulated duvets. And very appropriately, uh, this show was set on a Caribbean island, so we at least had the warmth from the stage, if not from the actual... Uh, London weather. The show opens with this amazing, vibrant scene of sort of street hawkers in the present day singing this glorious song. You know, everyone's really happy and sort of interacting, at least visually, with the audience. 
Um, and and they move it from that into it's a, it's sort of a it's a wraparound for the show. They move into a fairy tale, a fairy tale story of T Moon, um, uh, who's an orphan girl saved from a terrible storm and then brought up by a peasant family. Now. Is this a sort of Little Mermaid adjacent oh, story? Not even adjacent. This is based <laughs> off of the Little right, Mermaid. Okay, cool. Um, so I, I went through it. So, but essentially, this is a musical by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty from 1990. That was based on Rosa Guy's 1985 book, My Love, My Love. Uh-huh. And that was inspired by The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Got it. So okay. That's, that's the three lines. Six degrees of separation yes, exactly. there from the original. And... You know, it's, it's set on an island where there is um, segregation. Yeah. There is the peasant side of the, the sort of dark skin uh, side of the island. And then there's the light skin side who are called the beaux hommes, who are the sort of aristocracy of the island. Um, and out of this comes a love story. And that is the love story of T-Moon, who discovers uh, Daniel, who's been injured in a car crash. She sort of nurses him back to life and at one stage has to make a pact with the gods to offer her own soul. She falls in love with him and offers her own uh, life for his. Right, and crucially, one of them is from one side and one isn't from the other, right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. Got it. Yeah. Presumably, and she's from the so she's, dark, she's, she's a peasant. Girl. Yes, yes, and she's from okay. the peasant side and he is from the, uh, the grand homme side okay. of things. And then from then, she walks many miles to go and find him and the love story plays out from there. Right. So in terms of a love story, Nick, what did you think about it? I mean, it is, once you clock that it is The Little Mermaid, you know it's not going to end very well. I don't, <laughs> I'm offering a massive spoiler for that, really. Um, uh, I should point out we're talking about the Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid story here, not the Disney one, which does have a rather happier ending. Well, and it's good timing because The Little Mermaid live-action movie opened this very yeah, week exactly to rave right. reviews. Another star is born in that one as well. Indeed. Mm. Uh, really, it's a really interesting musical, mm. partly um, because... Um, Calypso or you know son or soca music is very rarely seen in musical theatre mm. it's still pretty rare that you see an all non-white musical this is I think very excitingly staged by Ola Ince quite sort of expressively staged really mm. you know with, with this big sort of open almost like a sort of uh, sunken conversation bit this sort of open area and rather than go full Caribbean and sort of put palm trees around which would be your I think in an open space and a sort of open lush space like Regent's Park Open Air Theatre mm. would be your first thought yeah it'd be she, an obvious instinctive choice yeah she, she stages it very <laughs> sort of very sort of stylized with mm. just these yeah. lighting pillars which yeah. uh, the cast sort of clamber up and hang from and sing from I remember the first London production which was 1994 which I think was the first time I, I ever saw a quote from one of my reviews on a poster which no, I was pathetically excited way. about at the time sitting on the shoe that's me that's mine that's my name that's yeah. that's it. um, it's not a, a terribly challenging story you know it's you, you sort of see the arc of it yeah. pretty clearly from the start but it is sung absolutely extraordinarily brilliantly by the cast here uh, not least by Gabrielle Brooks as Timoon who just just has the most powerful voice. She was Rita Marley, wasn't she, yes. in um, Get Up Stand Olivier Up? Nominated for She's that. absolutely she bloody right brilliant. Too. Isn't she? I mean, I remember, yes, because she was playing opposite Arinzi Kenne as Bob Marley in that. Um, but she is a veteran, isn't she? So she started apparently as a child actor at seven. Did she? I didn't know yeah. that. Really? In uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Whistle Down the Wind. Ah. But it's been in all sorts of things from Hairspray to Book of Mormon and obviously Get Up Stand Up, as you, as you mentioned. But yeah, every time she is an extraordinary presence as well, not just a singing voice. I mean, the singing voice is absolutely first class, incredible. Yeah. But she's just this wonderful sort of wide-eyed, 
great uh, ball of energy and is mm. a re- really exciting stage presence to watch. I, yeah. found her, I couldn't take my eyes off. And at one point she has to she has to dance excitingly. You know, she's oh. billed as this oh, really yes. exciting yes. dancer. It does sound like there's quite a kind of there's some quite serious undercurrents going on here. Yeah, there are. I think it's not meant to be class, that's not meant race, to be a, a authoritarianism, pun with the ocean. imperialism, <laughs> yeah. segregation, all of this but because it's a fairy tale, it's sort of wears them quite lightly so it sort of does nod a lot to them and and does interact with with some of this I mean the imperialism and and, and the sort of heritage nature there's an extraordinary song which involves sort of a massive puppet and and it's it's, I mean I've never seen anything quite like it on the same but it it certainly engages with these um, all of these aspects is very aware of them really wants to be but but ultimately it is a fairy tale so You know, there's only so far it can go. You could sure, take you okay. could take kids to this, and they would mm. not necessarily be troubled with that sort of aspect of it. But okay. I think if you adults would notice, you know, yeah. I'd forgotten until today when I was thinking about it, the authoritarianism where in the present day, um, you know, the, the the sort of current day story, they have a, a police sort of presence which comes in is very violent yes. and you can't help but think okay this is yeah, all part of make some connections yeah yeah absolutely but I suppose there's stuff then that if you did take children to it you could you could you, there are ways to talk about it it gives you a yes, gives you absolutely. some yeah, yeah yeah we should also mention the gods you know, oh, some of the old gods I appear love a capricious this. god <laughs> yes oh, <laughs> that's they have, kind yeah, they, yeah, have, yeah. they have fantastic <laughs> outfits here <laughs> I, rather, I rather coveted the outfit absolutely. of uh, Le Shepherd's Papa G yes uh, that the was, hat the yes, top hat with the skull on it the top hat with the skull on it you know so I'm sure I could get away with that in totally. <laughs> on a press night. And we should say Annalisa Lamola, who's the Mother Earth goddess, um, who also has an absolute knockout voice as well. She has a few numbers which yeah. are really brilliant. I mean, I didn't know a single one of these songs coming in. No. And I, you know, at no point was I bored. At no point, I, everyone is like an eleven o'clock number. Really, it yeah. sort of keeps you, it keeps you entertained. It, it's really fast, and every performer is up to it. I do have a quibble. Yep. Uh, my quibble is with uh, the character of Daniel. Uh-huh. So not the acting. I think uh, the actor Stevenson Arden Soje is is great. I think the character is a is a little shit, to be quite uh, frankly. Uh, to be he's, quite quite frank. a, he's quite a big shit, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the big problem for the love story. This is one of these stories, great love stories, and she gives up her life for this man who at no stage shows any interest other than when he gets a quick roll in the hay. But even then, there's no idea that he's actually going to give up his life with the Aristos yeah. to go and join her on the beach. He's always talking about, we're going to get a house together. At no point do you think, oh yeah, he's going to give it all up. You think, yeah. oh, he's having a nice there's little time this, and then yeah. he'll go back to his life. And the, so uh, that sort of scuppered the, the love story for me a little bit. There is this brilliant but horrible number called Some Girl, which has the line, some girls you marry, some girls you love, mm. which, you know, pretty much spells out well, yeah, exactly. what his attitude is. Um, for me, he, gave, he was giving real Tom Wamsgans energy from <laughs> Succession. Real, <laughs> that real sort of unctuous smarm and sort of, yes. like, hey, hi, you know. Mm, <laughs> but also how poisonous he is to her when he thinks that she's, oh, just some other peasant girl. You yeah, know? And then right. Even when he finds out she saved his life, yeah. he isn't particularly grateful until he thinks, oh, actually, she's quite She's pretty. quite cute. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. So, um, I feel like it might make me quite cross. Well, I think she is such a wonderful presence mm. that you can override that. He's really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. He's really annoying, and you sort of put that to one side because it's when she's singing with the gods and about her own feelings and all these things, you really buy into that. Yeah. And you just think, oh, he's 
going to ruin it all, isn't he? <laughs> sure enough. And also, <laughs> I just think the, the battery of voices on show are, yeah. are just incredible, just sort of ravishing, blow, blow you out of your seat. Mm. It looks great. It's done really excitingly and pacily by Ole Ince. Um, so I, I, I think it's terrific. You know, it works on a freezing night in Regent's Park. Yeah, and as it gets hotter, it'll just get better. Yeah. I was going to say, I might just wait until it warms up yeah, a bit. Yeah. And then yes, I'll go, indeed. Oh, I'll go yeah. and see it. Yeah, go see it on a matinee, maybe yeah. on a sunny day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, we should give a shout out to Melissa Simon Hartman's costumes, yep. which are wonderful, but also to, uh, now I hope I get this right, Kenrick H2O Sandy and Nikhil Latouche, who are the choreographers, because the choreography is stunning. Yeah, it is indeed. This has been the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk and you can find all our previous episodes in the drop-down below this one. Thanks to our guest this week, Mark Gatiss. The Motive in the Queue is on until July the 15th, so make sure you grab a ticket. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. See you next week.